to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 128, recorded on February 29th. February? Oh, geez, February. it's not February. Uh, I'm thinking about winter already. Winter is coming, but it is October 29th. Um, and uh, with me today on, on this episode, it's a nice, fun binary number, 128, because uh, we didn't start at show zero, uh, is a, uh, a man I, I respect his opinions on, partly because they're logical and informed opinions, um, but he's got a way of getting his points across in a very down-to-earth, understandable way that everybody can just absorb. I, I love um, listening and watching to him on the This Week in Tech network with his hands-on photography show, as well as other platforms as well. Uh, Ant Pruitt is here. Our Anthony Pruitt joins me in the co-pilot seat. How are you doing, sir? I am unbelievable as always. Sir, how are you, Mr. Kamareshka? I am doing well, uh, you know, as, as well as anybody can be doing in these very unusual times this year and uh, carving out the time for this podcast every week, this, this hour uh, of conversation and discussion. Um, it's the thing I look forward to. This is my relaxation for the week. This is my, uh, my I escape. hate to break it to you now. This is we can't say this is unusual anymore. It's freaking end of October. This is pretty usual now. Yeah, the, the new normal is <laughs> set right in. I, uh, I'm not I'm not expecting to go back to the way things were anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. It'll happen. Uh, and, and I wish it was sooner than later. But in the meantime, we can still geek out about photo stuff on, yeah. uh, on this podcast, which we always do. And uh, uh, we got some pretty geeky, interesting stories to to go through the rundown. But before we get to that, and uh, mm-hmm. what have you been up to lately, uh, photographically and otherwise? Uh, photographically, I've just been trying to spend a little bit more time here in my home with experimenting with different shots. I've played around with some macro here and there as I thought about the mad scientist, Mr. Don Com, <laughs> and how I've struggled with just getting focus locked and getting the lighting just right. And it, it's definitely a challenge, but it's it's therapeutic all at the same time. And Continuing to test out some products here and there and just do my thing. I love it. Just I love creating content and I love actually being able to create content for my employer, Twit TV. Well, and and you're doing a great job there, not just in in front of the camera, but you do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, the technical direction. Uh, yeah, it's been shows. Fun. I, Thank I you. see you posting photos on Twitter about you directing, you know, Floss Weekly or whatever it happens yeah. to be. And, um, Thank you. and you, 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 you're the glue behind the scenes and you don't get <laughs> the necessary credit for that. And you're not the only person doing it, mind you. But right. um, I'm, I'm glad to see uh, you are being kept busy. Yes, um, yes. Sharing. It's been great. You know, that was something... Um, I've always been interested in the technical side of things as far as production goes. And they knew that and said, well, you know, when you're ready to step back in here to this booth, just let us know. And sure enough, I've had that opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, and we got an opportunity to uh, to look at what other creatives are doing, whatever science and equipment and technology is available to us. And there's some really fun stuff to talk about uh, in this episode. So we'll start with the, uh, the top story. A Canon's ISO 4 million multi-purpose camera uh, wow. was used to record fluorescent life in the Amazon. And uh, 
this is the uh, the ME twenty F dash SH, which rolls right off the tongue. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not a it's it's not a consumer facing product. This is designed for science and industry and and things like that. And um, it's a box camera, uh, and uh, so that might get uh, Jordan Drake's attention because he loves them so much. <laughs> but uh, the the idea of uh, of a camera that can shoot basically it can see in the dark. I mean, you do need photons floating around, uh, right. but you, you don't need a lot of them when you're cranking it to the absolute maximum. And it's not terribly useful at those settings, just like any camera that we would normally use. Um, you don't use it at that high. It's there. Uh, it's there in an emergency, I suppose. But you never want to have to go to that level to get the shot because you're I'd not going to be truly happy with the results, right? Um, but what, what do you think about uh, using a camera like this to uh, to see the fluorescence in nature? And, and I'm not sure if you read the story and, and what it was used for, but what are your thoughts? Mm. Well, when I saw this, I, I, I laugh how the, the author mentions it being a way back camera from 2013. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's seven years ago. I guess that is pretty old on the camera side of things when you think about it from a hardware standpoint. But this this particular type of camera, no, I have no use for it, but I do love the idea that it's existing and it's able to help out from a science standpoint and research and help us understand a little bit more about this amazing world that we live on and live in and see all of the fine little beautiful animals floating around out there that we couldn't typically see with our eye. I love this idea, but Four yeah, million I mean, ISO, say, good grief! Uh, <laughs> How dark I mean, it was is it out announced there? Announced in in 2013. Uh, I think it came out a little later than that, and it only has a 2.2 uh, megapixel sensor, so it's not designed for right. anything other than this. Right. Um, but this being, uh, it can capture in light levels, as the article on DP Review says, as low as 0.0005 lux. Man, at a gain setting of uh, 75 dB, you don't really. Um, register it with the standard photographic metrics at that point. You're, you're right. looking at a, a signal-to-noise ratio and all of these other things. Um, but while that was interesting, you know, I, and I, I do a lot of ultraviolet photography stuff, mm-hmm. and I've got some powerful flashlights, as you know, I, yep. I like to, to talk about on, on this very podcast. Um, these are so powerful um, at making things fluoresce. I can do video, like uh, you know, 24 frames per second or so, with a, a torch like this at ISO 6400, maybe I'd have to push it up to, depending on the subject, uh, different mm-hmm. subjects will fluoresce to different degrees in nature, up to 25,600. But that's Damn. entirely useful uh, on my on my Lumix S1H or a lot of other cameras too. That that's not I'm not cranking that to ISO you know 400,000 or which I a lot of other cameras can do again that's pushing up against the ceiling you don't want to get that far but right you don't need it um the fact that the camera was used uh in this uh documentary i, I guess it was released in 2018 so uh the mm-hmm. s1h would not have been available but the thing is that the march of technology is such that um you can do things with stuff today that would have been almost impossible two to five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, or it would have cost a fortune to do it beyond any of your budgets. Right. But the I, processing is so much more efficient now and so much more affordable on top of that to be able yeah, to pull this I, stuff off. And I will say that 
nowhere in the uh, the behind the scenes or the the knowledge that has been presented about this story, which I've seen on a great number of uh, uh, news uh, outlets, which is why I wanted to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Nobody says that that footage was shot at ISO four million. Uh, right. Just that the, the camera was capable of shooting at those levels, but I don't think that it was required. And I want to bring that back down to the personal level mm-hmm. where I have done a ton of ultraviolet fluorescence photography and some videography, and I can do it at uh, at consumer level uh, prices. Yes, the S1H is a fairly expensive camera, but I've shot a lot of that stuff with a Lumix GX9, right? Mm-hmm. A micro four thirds body and, uh, and it, in fact, some of my favorite images have come from that particular camera. It's accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. The real trick is getting the brighter ultraviolet light source. Uh, and in that case, if you, and this is coming a long way as well, this right. flashlight didn't exist a few years ago. Right. Um, I'm holding, uh, which nobody can see except for Ant, um, the Convoy C8. Um, and uh, maybe I'll put a link in the show notes to this particular uh, flashlight because it is the most intense and narrow beam focused ultraviolet light that I've seen. It actually takes two of the uh, what the eighteen six fifty batteries, which are the big honking things that are. Oh my uh, goodness! Like, they're like a, an, a well. I mean, they're the same f- like form factor as a a double a battery but they're much bigger than them uh and so it takes two of those and it is rocking it uh if i had that in this same scenario uh, i could have made the same magic with a lot less equipment i wouldn't have needed to to have gone to the industrial strength stuff uh that is out there (laughs) and canon is known for experimenting with you know uh, 250 megapixel sensors and all of these uh specialized uh pieces of equipment that are only advertised in trade publications and things um it's now in our hands we can do this now people (laughs) and so we should be empowered to try this uh on our own i got a question for you regarding this type of shooting scenario every time i i Think about anything shooting ISO 6400 or higher. I'm always concer- concerned about heat and noise. Now, what what is your thought process when you're when you're filming these ultraviolet scenarios, similar to what they were talking about in this article? Is that crossing your mind? It's like, okay, I know I need to be somewhat steady, and it, it's heat hitting the sensor and, and making the pixels hot. How, what's, what's your thought process on this for the, for the lay person, if you will? So you, you're right that heat impacts noise. Um, and that's why astrophotography cameras have like thermal uh, electric coolers strapped right. onto the back of them. And, um, and so to use a, a camera that has active cooling, like uh, the, the S1H. S1H uh, does, because it's a yeah, tank. Yeah, it does. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and, and so any camera that has that, and it's, it's more common than you'd think when you get into uh, the cinema space and you, when you have cinema cameras, this mm-hmm. is uh, m- the majority of cameras will, will have that. Um, so for that kind of big production, it's not really an issue. They'll be able to keep it um, uh, uh, under control. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you are uh, in, you know, in the Amazon, uh, it's going to be hot. Uh, mm-hmm. even at night. And so, you know, your sensor is going to heat up and it's going to, after a little while, you'll start to notice a degradation in image quality. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that in mind, uh, an ISO 4 million camera is going to have all of the, the tricks to compensate for that. But what would you do um, with a... Uh, I, I don't know, uh, just a, a smaller uh, Fuji camera, Sony, Canon, Nikon, and their new mirrorless bodies, especially when you're looking at the uh, the R5 with its 
overheating. Uh, alleged you know, overheating. Alleged. I mean, I don't have one. I've never <laughs> tested one. It's their allegations to me. Uh, it's hearsay. But um, what you know is interesting too, though, Ant. I saw an article. I don't think we talked about it on on the podcast, but um, there was somebody that took apart, uh, took the back off the uh, uh, the R five and put in some more thermally conductive um, material. I mean, I've got some sitting on my desk. I don't even know why I have this sitting on my desk here. Uh, but these little <laughs> pads of uh, of thermally conductive stuff to stick things together to pass heat through, and they just stuck a couple of those pads. Um, on the back of the camera so that mm-hmm. it made a firmer contact with the outer casing of the camera itself and the overheating problems were significantly mitigated. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you could take apart your camera and uh, and put some thermal padding in there. That's one solution, although I don't recommend anybody without mm, experience Canon's not going to enjoy so. you doing that. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> warranty will be voided, I am sure. Um, but beyond that, I, there's not much that you can do personally to, to take the heat away from the camera. Right. Um, you know, I remember... Uh, hearing a story from somebody that was using one of the the very first Red One cinema cameras. Mm-hmm. And they had to have dry ice on set. Uh, I've heard that, that same story too. <laughs> and because heat was a huge issue. Now, you, obviously, uh, it's not practical for most people. But um, those thermoelectric coolers that are available for uh, astrophotography cameras, you can just buy a Peltier device and just wire it up and do a whole DIY cooling rig okay. uh, that you can strap on the back of a camera if that is a huge concern for you. Um I would only do that in mission critical production work. And right. I don't, I don't think that I would, I don't think I'd ever be in that scenario. Uh, I'll put it that way to say that that's <laughs> going to be a necessity for me. Well said. Well, well said. I, and actually, uh, w- what if I just look up on eBay right now? Well, while I have this in my head, mm-hmm. let's go uh, Peltier device. And how much does one of these cost? $11.60. Okay. Uh, for a thermoelectric Peltier device that I, I'm not even sure what the voltage is. You'd have to attach it to something. It's got a red wire and a black wire. It's just a bare thing. Right. Um, so wire that up, stick that on the back of your camera, stick a heat sink on the hot side, put the cold side on the back of the underneath your, uh, where your LCD screen goes. If you have a, um, uh, a fully articulating screen and uh, you're, you're golden, you, you can make your own. And there's kits that include fans and heat sinks and two of these things for $25. Ooh, I'll put bucks. a link to that in the show notes as well if anybody is feeling really experimental. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> why the heck not? Why the heck not? But um, that, that's, uh, well, that's where we are. Technology is advancing. And if you really want to get the leg up, I suppose, Ant, um, uh, you'll be able to check the show notes at photogeekweekly.com in order to make sure you get the best results possible. <laughs> All right, let's um, uh, let's go from uh, twenty five dollars to six thousand um, dollars. Big jump in price, and this is a report uh, from DP Review that uh, the Zeiss full frame Android powered ZX One camera uh, to be released on October 29th, That is today. Will cost six thousand dollars. Now, um, I love the idea of a like a purpose-built camera camera not not a phone that has a good camera in it but a camera running android uh and from a company like like zeiss you know you're going to get good optics you're going to get you know a a decent uh, experience there but 
for $6,000. And the ergonomics of this thing d- do not look comfortable. Um, not even close. Just no. Yeah. <laughs> a pine no. away. Tell me, uh, tell me your opinions on this. Well, my first thought was this thing is $6,000 and is running a, a virtually a free operating system. Where is that $6,000 price tag coming from? Uh, yes, this is the Zeiss uh, brand and label. So as you mentioned, we do expect some in just unbelievable optics on it, but I'm still not seeing $6,000. And then you couple down to the the form factor of it. Uh, it sort of reminds me of a, of a point and shoot on steroids. Uh, point and shoot cameras. I've not been the biggest fan of them because of how they feel in my hands. Point and shoot cameras do a nice job for their, far as their purpose go, but they never really felt good. And I'm looking at this and thinking $6,000 for something that's not going to feel good in my hands. And it's running Android, which can be quite interesting in itself. Uh, no, I just, no. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't mind the Android element. I, I think that that could be a really powerful ingredient, especially when, if you were to get third-party app developers to make programs <clears throat> dedicated to this camera, uh, I think that you could have some really innovative concepts come to the, uh, come to the forefront uh, that you couldn't really have uh, from anybody else. I so, like, if you that. have a really cool app already on Android make a Zeiss ZX-1 version of that to take full advantage of the camera. Um, and you might have something there. I think that might be an asset, but it's not out of the box. It's not on mm-hmm. day one. And you have to have those software vendors jump in and say, yes, we want to support this device that 30 people will buy. Right. So let's say, I guess you're saying take something like a Filmic, uh, Filmic Pro's first light camera app. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and put that on this body. Okay, that... I could see that. But again, $6,000, you got 10 people essentially just going <laughs> to break down and do this. I, I don't well, know. I, and, and we're just guessing on the number of sales, <laughs> but it's a high price and it's a simplistic device. And, and there is an entrenched audience for Leica to make all their limited editions that they sell out for. And, uh, and so uh, people will buy this. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be me. It's no. not going to be you, I don't think. No, uh, not even, but no. If you look at some of the specs, it is a uh, 37.4 megapixel uh, full frame sensor, which is respectable. Yes. Um, it is a 35 millimeter f2 lens, which is also, you know, uh, you know, the perfect kind of focal length and very yep. wide aperture that I would want on a camera like this. But it is a fixed lens. Yeah. Um, and uh, in terms of usability, you know, I like tactile with my cameras. I like to have buttons to change my ISO and my white balance. I, I like jog wheels and and things to adjust my my camera settings very easily so that i don't have to be pulled out of the experience that's probably Um, the one thing i do like about this body is the knobs on the top of it that's something that just feels right to me it does it it has two knobs on the top uh and i don't know if they are customizable uh one appears to be iso and one appears to be shutter speed uh, Mm -hmm. based on the way that they're labeled and because they're specifically labeled that way that might be all they do um that's it aside from a shutter button um, and what looks like a power on and off switch. Everything else on the back, I mean, the, the back is a beautiful interface. It's got a gigantic LCD screen um, that's also static. It can't tilt, it can't swivel or pivot in any way. Um, and so that basically means that every setting on the camera, you've got to start digging in through menus on a touch screen in order to do that. And that just, this camera screams to me like like the design, the fixed lens, the full frame sensor, uh, 
a street photography camera. Mm-hmm. But if I can't be nimble with my settings, if I got to pull myself out of the experience mm-hmm. to start chimping on the back and hunting through menus to adjust something like ISO, um, then no bueno, sir. Yeah, it, it kind of <laughs> yeah, it it kills me. I have so, no problem with the fixed lens and that aperture. Uh, that 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 is perfectly ideal for pretty much anybody that's just wanting to go out and just grab some candid shots or, or beautiful street photography or a, a nice portrait session. But if you're in say a studio environment and you want to get into say like high key or what have you, you're going to have to make sure your, your shutter and, and ISO is just right. And depending on the time of day, depending on your light power and, you're going to be flipping through menus and thinking, oh, wait a minute, I need to go back two screens. No, I went too far. I need to go forward two screens. And yeah, I, I, and I you'll, you'll get some muscle memory for it after a while. You'll learn the language. Uh, but this is the only camera that will be using that interface. And, and so you'll probably have another camera. This will not be anybody's only camera. And so you'll have to learn a second language just to get your head around it. Well, and um, then there's also, like you said, the advantage of Android, I just thought about this, are those remote apps where you can just take your tablet or your phone um, to connect to the device and control the with- device remotely. And that might be even more necessary on on this camera because yeah. uh, it has 512 gigabytes of storage, which is great. That's huge. But yeah. It's internal and there's no card slot. So you have oh to interface with this device, again, in a way that breaks any other workflow of plugging a card into a card reader and then carrying on. It's a different experience on pretty well every front. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to think of this as a beefed up smartphone that happens to have a lens attached to it um yeah but when you talk about a beefed up smartphone that's every smartphone now right (laughs) okay (laughs) touche i mean i i may have just taken delivery i i saw a notice uh on my uh my my nest doorbell said somebody dropped off a package on my my front porch i may have just taken delivery while we're recording this of my iphone 12 pro Mm-hmm. Um, and uh and so that that could be fun uh to, to say that you know you've three lenses and the lidar and, and so on uh, which we'll talk about in a later story in a different implementation but um if it's a choice between having something that legitimately fits in my pocket versus this i'm gonna choose the pocketable item every time right that's what most people are going to say that's yeah. pretty pretty All right, I don't standard. mean to be, be harsh on it. It is a, a feat of engineering from Zeiss, and I'm glad that they're producing a camera. That's the first one in the modern era that I know of. I don't know if they've uh, tried their hand at any of them in the film uh, generations, but uh, I hope it's not their last. I hope that they do get enough sales, enough return on their investment to take this, learn from it, and uh, reiterate come up with a brand new improved version uh, based on the feedback they get from people that actually spend the money on this thing. Yeah. Just let us know about version 2.0. Exactly. Or you know, <laughs> 2.5. Uh, <laughs> it might take a few more tweaks in firmware before even a second version is, is, a, is appropriate. All right. Well, let's talk about um, an ongoing um, saga. Um, this is a uh, photography to me especially before I was a photographer, um, was 
something, a, a way to see the achievements of society, uh, the troubles in society, you know, the, uh, the stuff that you would find in National Geographic, the, the images that would, uh, you know, start wars, the, the stuff mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, mankind landing on the moon. And uh, those were impactful, powerful moments, mm-hmm. but they couldn't be carried out. You know, th- th- that impact wouldn't be possible by just words. And just right. by an audio track, it would require the visuals. And that's where photography to me really became inspirational uh, when I was growing up. And so uh, this article, NASA shares photos captured by its OSIRIS-REx spacecraft during its six second stay on an asteroid. And it is explosive. <laughs> I'm sure you watched the video, right, Ant? Yeah. Yeah. That's what do you the think worst, of this? worst vacation ever. It takes me, was it, <laughs> however many months to get there and then I only get six seconds of time at my vacation. <laughs> worst vacation ever. <laughs> um, but the, the, it's captured in, in cameras. And uh, and so you've got a camera on, on the, the, the leg the or the... Uh, the the device that's going to be doing some capturing. And so it, it sets down and then it fires off a nitrogen canister um, of which it's a risky maneuver because it only had three of these canisters. It had three possible attempts to do this. Uh, and it, uh, it succeeded uh, on the first attempt. Actually, it over succeeded. So much debris was flown into the capture device that it couldn't close properly. All right. and so I believe they've solved that or they're in the process of doing that while this spacecraft is now returning with asteroid samples back to Earth. Um, it's an amazing look, feat. Uh, I mean, it's what is it, about 200 million miles? Is that what it said? Yeah, 200 million miles away. It's an amazing feat to be able to to, to, to have the brain power to come up with those calculations to say, okay, I'm going to be here on this day at this point in time and just unbelievable. And, and if you were to ask the, uh, the mathematicians and, and the physicists about, you know, well, how did you do it? They would just say, eh, math, math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, these space cameras that you see on, um, on a lot of these, uh, uh, vessels out there, uh, mm-hmm. like the New Horizons, one that went past Pluto and what have you, they're not going to be high resolution. In fact, most of them are going to be black and white, partly because they have to uh, survive the rigors of space. You know, yeah. it's uh, the extreme temperature differentials, but also the cosmic radiation that would just absolutely destroy, destroy any, <laughs> any sensor that we have in any camera that we've ever owned that our atmosphere protects. Um, and I even... I. I never substantiated this, but I, I heard secondhand that um, camera manufacturers like to uh, to ship their new cameras uh, on uh, on uh, uh, by uh, ocean rather than by air if they can, because oh, if they really? ship by ocean, there's uh, there's less chance of any cosmic radiation damaging a sensor uh, when it's up in you know thirty thousand feet. Uh, and really? I know that on the International Space Station uh, that they get uh, dead pixels and hot pixels so fast up there because they have no protection from that same thing using those consumer cameras. Um, and th- it's the worst thing if you open up like a flagship camera body and uh, you got hot pixels, even just one or two of them. Wow. Like if you were to buy a brand new 4K display and right. you have this red dot staring at you constantly, <laughs> you're going to return that right away, right? You don't want, that, that, is, that is a product failure from the manufacturer standpoint if things start to fail right from day zero. Right. Um, and uh, I so never anyhow. really considered that though, just, huh. 
30,000 feet, that is quite, that could be a challenge um, that they could just simply avoid. Yeah, and people that fly with their cameras a lot, they'll probably uh, notice sensor degradation faster than those that stay firmly put on the ground. Um, not wow. to say it's going to be a huge deal, but it's it's a, it's a very minor component that I think people are generally not aware of. Uh, cosmic radiation will get you every time. Um, but moreover, um, mm-hmm. this story to me, this was a moment. This was an achievement. It was documented with photography. Yes. Right. And so yes. all of the the achievements in in modern time, they have some photographic evidence that they have been made. Uh, and I use the term loosely. I mean, we made an image of a black hole for the first time. Photons were not in the equation. So photography is a, is a loose term. Yeah. But uh, all of these moments, they're all uh, captured with cameras for the most part. So, I mean, in your own life, I think we all have some of these own personal moments. Do, do you have any that stand out for you? Just from a photographic standpoint where I say, you know what, I'm glad the camera was uh was available and a shutter or, was clicked at that time yeah you know the, the newborn child or you know uh, uh an achievement of of winning an award and y- these are the images that would go into a photo album um, mm-hmm. in days of yore and then they would be reflected back on as a rekindling of those memories and photography's yeah. always been the tool for that yeah there's always there's, there's been a handful of things with my children in particular um you know, like with my my middle boy, uh, I, I can remember we we didn't even know we would be able to have kids because it was it was it was we just it just wasn't working out. And when he was little and watching him get into things and break things, and it, I had that thought in the back of my head, like you know, it was just a blessing that you know he's he's able to be here on this earth now. Yet he's over here tearing up something that I dearly love. And I would take a picture of it just to have that memory, you know. So there's a lot of little things like that with the boys. And I'm, I'm, I'm always thankful for those disposable cameras from Kodak back in the days. What you had, right? Because it was they were always just right there for whatever reason. Those cameras were all over the house. They're not the best of quality. What were they supposed to be? 35 mil, I think. Something around there and uh, fixed focal length. Fixed so, focal, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a fixed focus, I should say. Uh, so, you know, regardless of where they were in the frame, hopefully they were, you know, right. four feet to 10 but feet those, away from you. In but that those window. cameras were, they were always available in my house, almost like seeing a random coaster somewhere. You'd see one of those cameras. <laughs> You know, they they were cameras. less available to us. Um, really? my, my dad did have, uh, my, my uh, grandfather had a Canon AE-1 that my dad would, would use sometimes. But, um, you know, when we would, uh, I was looking through some old family uh, negatives and scanning them and digitizing them recently. Nice. And uh, I, I realized that on a single roll of film, there's my birthday, which is in June, and Christmas on the same roll of film. Wow. Right? Holding so, on to it. Didn't want to waste those exposures. Didn't want to waste them, but um, that means that every every one of those images was very valuable, yeah. right? It was it was that moment in time, and it doesn't matter if it was just a family gathering or uh, me on my first birthday with my face just completely covered in chocolate cake. Yeah, um, you know, th- those are those uh, fundamental, powerful memories. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, I had one uh, actually yesterday because I was I was teaching a workshop 
um, and uh, doing it virtually, which was a really difficult thing to do. It's the first time I ever tried to do a, uh, a water droplet refraction uh, workshop virtually. And it spanned uh, two weeks and uh, instruction on the beginning with some demo and then a week of trial and error and frustration. And then, you know, following up yesterday, uh, reviewing all the images and, uh, and then doing another demo. And I salute you. I'm pulling I, my hair out right now thinking about it and I'm bald. I, it went well, I think. Um, I, but I did a demo where I set up two flower petals and I carefully placed water droplets on them. And, and I had found an ant on, on, my, on the floor of, of, of my studio. Mm-hmm. And I think it came from uh, some potted plants who just moved inside recently. And so right, uh, nature comes with it. Uh, and so I, I put this, I took this ant and put it in, in, in a little jar, uh, with some sugar water and, and, and I let them sit there until I was ready to, uh, to set up about a half an hour later and, uh, using a little stick, I took him and I put him on the, the uh, flower petal and he walked back across, yep. uh, and I was, I was able to get a shot of him, uh, walking across the flower petals, kind of interacting with the water droplets. Oh man. And then, uh, and this was just after I had created the setup with the droplets, I thought, okay, this is great. This is going to you know, be a, a perfect image, you know, something that I'd put on my website that I'd share on social media that I'd be, yeah. be happy with. But what if, what if I could add in an actor? And it's not the first time that I've used insects in these photos. I've done it quite a bit. It's always a huge challenge and it's chaos. Yeah. Um, but I'm doing this live in front of like a dozen students. Yeah. That's uh, a feat. And, and, and that ant doesn't speak English, I'm sure. No, right? He's not a cooperative <laughs> actor. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, I shared this image uh, with you. I, I think I sent it in the email that I sent you with the, the, the show recording links. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it turned out really well. But at the same time, um, it was impromptu. And it wasn't that I caught that moment. It was that I caught it with a group of people yeah people were able to coalesce around that and be a part of the experience and listen to the antics uh you know pun intended i guess antics um with the uh the idea uh of of being able to make this work and so that was that was a moment for me and i I don't have many of those moments this year. Uh, you know, creativity and inspiration have been not at an all time low, I'd say, but mm-hmm. uh, distractions and life and everything get in the way. And so th- that was a, a powerful moment. And uh, to, to see NASA have their moments, they blow mine out of the water for sure. I mean, it's, it's a really I cool mean, video. NASA. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not NASA here, but I'm, I'm you know, trying, to, I, trying to I make take that back though. I, I I, I do have something more recent and it's, and it's basically from yesterday. I think it was yesterday where I'm testing out this camera and I actually, when I'm doing my reviews or doing the tutorials for my, for my show, every now and then I ask the family if they would like to be involved as part of an example and, you know, cause sometimes they, they're, they're curious, Yep, but but most of the time they're like, no, we we, we don't want to mess anything up, yada yada yada. <laughs> well, with this particular instance, I knew I wanted to shoot some type of video sequence, and I said I wanted to do something that would be, air quotes, cinematic, and something that would feature my boys with their athletics. And you know, if you follow any any sports team online, they promote cinematic footage of their athletes because that's what those high school athletes want to see uh, and aspire to do. So they're all trying to recreate those types of shots because that's just what they love. 
And I said, well, let me do something like that, but I'll use it with my boys because they're probably going to get a, a jolt out of it. It's going to be something that's going to fire them up. And it did. I did the post on it last night. We'll post processing on it last night. I'll probably share it here soon ish. Not sure. Some things I keep private <laughs> to myself. Yeah, well, just because I, I, I do mine. the same as well. I mean, we, we do family snaps all the time. Yeah, because they're uh, mine. But yeah, uh, and I, I don't need to, to share them to get the full value out of them, right? Right. Uh, but uh, I'm so glad that NASA shared this uh, and that they specifically chose to put a camera in exactly the right place to capture this moment, knowing that that moment was going to happen and to design um, the entire s- spacecraft with that in mind. With that right? in mind. It, in order for us to kind of revel in that success. Six seconds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's not it's not six seconds at like 24 frames per second. No. It's like, six, like I don't know, two frames per second or something. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I just watched the video again as we were talking and uh, it's so happy to see everybody so thrilled in, uh, in in the lab and and also all wearing masks, by the way, of course. kudos to them uh, in, in that place to uh, to make this happen. So 2020 has a silver lining, if uh, if we can call it that. It's uh, thank you, NASA. Uh, We all needed that. Indeed. Now, I one of the reasons why I bought the uh, the iPhone 12 Pro versus the iPhone 12 uh, was because it has a lidar component in it, and I foresee that to uh, be a great tool for uh, depth mapping, possibly uh, to uh, help with post processing and blurring backgrounds, but also for autofocus and low light. I think oh, I thought you were talking is, about it for augmented reality. <laughs> well, uh, not so much augmented reality, but for stereoscopic yeah. reimagining of a 2D image would be really in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Because if I can get a very accurate depth map, then I can uh, I can view that in in 3D. And I've I've currently been experimenting with the uh, the Loom Pad that uh, I had just received uh, as we were recording last week's episode. And mm-hmm. I've been talking with the um, uh, one of the founders and CEOs uh, who's agreed actually to be on an episode of Inside the Lens that will be coming out next week. Oh, outstanding. So uh, that'll be really fun. Light field technology is uh, is really turning a, an interesting corner here. And I'm pretty happy about that. But uh, LiDAR tech uh, can be adapted in many different ways. And so this Petapixel article I found uh, says, this external LiDAR device can add continuous autofocus to any camera, or rather, let's say to any lens. Lens, um, right. And so um, it's this big black cube of a device that sits in your camera's hot shoe. Um, and it has a LiDAR component inside there that on its own, it's just LiDAR. I mean, it can't talk to the camera at all. Right. There's it's no way that it can interface in with, 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 with yeah, exactly. Um, but it can interact with a follow focus device. And so these are devices that have little gears um, and those gears would attach to either gears on your lens or you can you know, strap something on your lens uh, to give it those same gears for compatibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can automatically then move the focusing rings or aperture rings, depending on what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, it's focus. So you could take a manual focus lens um, that is designed, uh, maybe it's a vintage lens, maybe it's something from the 1950s that just has a character and a flair that you like. Um, maybe it's a, it's a modern cinema lens, but most of them are manual focus. Most of them um, are, yeah. 
And so in this case, you could adapt this device with its follow focus mechanism to focus a lens such that it will offer continuous autofocus. Um, and at first I thought, well, hallelujah, all I have to do is just plug this thing in and now I can autofocus on my vintage cameras and stuff. That would be great. <laughs> not, not quite as revolutionary as it first seems, right? Well, I'm still intrigued by it because that means that this is something that's top of mind for developers out there. So we're probably going to see more and more of this in the future. That's going to be well, you know, much more redefined and make this even better because I don't know about you, but I've held some of those rigs for video and uh, that have to have focus pulling. And it is quite a challenge to concentrate on proper focus pull in addition to thinking about the actual overall composition and framing. Uh, so if something is just going to take multiple that, people uh, doing these different tasks, right? right. And, it, it's, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> and so if you lot, can take but, that, but but if you if you want full control over it, and you know you got multiple people trying to gain control over the system, I don't know if I would depend on continuous autofocus from this box, this mysterious uh, third party box sitting on the top of the camera. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd have to see it proven. I, I'd have to see some real world tests from independent reviewers to say this is a good idea. Right. But, right. Again, um, that's why I say down the road. I don't know about right now, but down the road. <laughs> the standalone system is being produced for only $325. Yeah. So that is the saving grace of this. Um, if it was like twice the price you know, or add a zero to it, anybody in the cinema space would just flat out ignore it because right. what they, they have works. They're not <laughs> yet. Yeah, everything is fine. But at this price point, you might get some indie filmmakers that say, you know what? Let's just give this a shot. Let's roll this into the budget of some really uh, lo-fi production to see if we can get away with removing uh, an extra control person mm -hmm. with this device um, in order to save some money. And I think that might be its wheelhouse where it, 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 it survives. Uh, and again, sort of like that Zeiss camera, uh, it looks pretty rudimentary. And just ripe for a version 2.0 to fix any issues with this. And it's the kind of product that I want to see succeed mm -hmm. enough to go to the next level and to improve and to just kind of uh, be something that grabs the attention of those high profile cinematographers that otherwise wouldn't pay any attention to it at all. Mm -hmm. But again, we never know. This may end up in that high profile kit. Uh, it's, it's just another tool that that's been optimized to make these things so much better for the creators out there on that high profile list. It's going to take some I'll time. I'll tell I'm you sure. something that will never show up in a, pr a high profile kit. What's that? Um, is the Lamography uh, has introduced a panoramic <laughs> camera with a liquid filled lens. You sent this and I was like, why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> why? Now, okay. So, Apparently, you can fill this lens with liquid. It's got a membrane on either side that then creates this convex lens. Um, and they're, they're demoing it by filling the lens with different colored liquids, which would then tint the image. Right. I mean, I, okay, sure. Uh, you, can, you can get pre-tinted film emulsions as well. This is not a requirement for anybody. Um, now, they, they do say that uh, the hydro... 
The Hydrochrome Sutton's Panoramic Bel Air camera is the world's first 35 millimeter format panoramic camera with a liquid film, uh, liquid filled lens. Um, uh, not surprising as you might think, um, but uh, they had to specify 35 millimeter as in 1890 or 1859 a pioneering mm-hmm. british photographer thomas sutton invented a panoramic uh, panoramic camera with a water-filled lens uh, that recorded on curved plates so it's not a new concept but i don't see anybody clamoring to go back to the right. 1850s and 60s when somebody thought that was a good idea right some things you can just leave them leave them be leave, leave it back there that old tech's gone <laughs> Um, however, I came up with some idea that might be interesting for this. What if? Do tell. Uh, what if you had a liquid filled lens with just clear liquid, not anything fancy or tricky. Um, and instead of, um, uh, instead of keeping it as a static lens, you know, those membranes are flexible. What if you had a way to adjust the membrane to flex it during an exposure? to change the shape of a lens okay. during a long exposure. Okay. That could be artistically kind of interesting, right? Okay. You got me. I'm listening. <laughs> <clears throat> or think about your bottle of salad dressing, mm-hmm. water and vinegar, you know, different density liquids right. that could go inside there and they would have a different refractive Refraction. index. Oh, okay. Right. So I'm coming up with some ideas here that might be, you got it. You got to throw the science into it and and that, that science and art have to mix, right? Changing the shape of the lens or using different density liquids. Uh, And then what happens if it's like a straight issue or maybe you give the camera a bit of a shake and then you take a picture uh, in order to differentiate and get some, I don't know. I'm coming up with ideas that actually make me, as we're talking, want to spend the $79 that this thing costs. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. I, I I, was totally like, why? Why did you send this, this to me? But <laughs> what you're saying now does pique my interest just a little bit, you know, because of the science behind it. And again, just like you said, with, with, with art, it's nice to be able to throw some science in there to try to enhance the art that we're creating. And this... I can see it now. Thank you, mad scientist. <laughs> what, what if you freeze the liquid inside the lens, huh? How about uh, that? Crystals, <laughs> shooting through crystals. <laughs> shooting through crystals as your lens itself. Uh, and then strap one of those little air-activated uh, uh, hand warmer things, those little pouches of what's yeah. in them, like iron filings or whatever. Uh, strap that to one side of the lens, which it'll melt on that side, but not yep. the other. Yep. Um, I don't know. I'm maybe i'm selling a bunch of these devices right now i i think it is a really poorly designed camera as soon, uh, you, as, soon you, as this podcast publishes the pr folks are going to be emailing you hey hey um yeah <laughs> about that idea <laughs> uh it's it's a plastic box of a camera and that's what you expect when you're spending 79 dollars on an entire camera including the lens um but <laughs> hey you know it, if you have something weird, you can be creative with it. Uh, you know, that I think that's something of a universal truth in terms True. of anything that's off the beaten path that doesn't fall under the umbrella of normalcy. Yes. Uh, creativity just kind of uh, surrounds it, you know, mm-hmm. so long as you're thinking in a, in a way that is uh, is creative. I, I love those ideas, Mr. Don. That, that's, 
that's how you that's how this should be marketed is think of the possibilities you know right now yeah. the, this article from dp dp review just gives you an overview of what it is but it's and, not much to it far as well, think of the, the possibilities people marketing this camera right now at lamography they missed every one of the points that i just mentioned that would be cool yeah. They have no examples of anybody utilizing the product in any. So I don't right. even know if they're aware <laughs> that those are possibilities. That's what so. I said. Your your email is going to blow up here pretty soon, or your phone's <laughs> going to ring. Hey, can we talk? <laughs> All right. Well, who knows? I if they want to send me one, I'd yeah. play with it. Uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't mind tinkering. Uh, but I got other projects that I need to to worry about first. Yeah, dude, you don't have the uh, time. Ah, that, that's the problem. I don't have the time. Uh, I don't think anybody really has much time these days. But you, know, you spend your time, Ant, uh, doing your podcast, uh, mm-hmm. or not your podcast, but your show, uh, mm-hmm. your you know, visual, people can see a kind of show, mm-hmm. um, uh, hands-on photography, right? Yes, sir. Every week, every Thursday, we release a show at about 2 p.m. Pacific time. And it's just little tips and tricks in about 10 minutes to... I may go 30 minutes, but I try to keep it around 15 minutes or so, depending on the topic. And I just walk you through how to be a better photographer and a better post processor. And as you said at the beginning of the show, I like to speak uh, layman's terms, if you will, because everybody can do this. It just takes 10 minutes of of time to think through the process. That's all. Yeah. And I think that if everybody can get a little injection of, uh, inspiration, a new idea, a new concept to explore that they can make their own. That—that uh, that is the um, uh, the beginning of that creative process for me. Mm-hmm. I, if I don't find it within myself in a day, uh, because I just came across something randomly that gave me an idea, uh, the creativity came because I saw an article on something or I watched a video on something. Right. And you're creating exactly that kind of content that uh, inspires that creativity. So thank you for what you do. Uh, and where can you. people find that? Uh, you can go to twit.tv slash hop. That's twit.tv slash H-O-P, which is short for hands on photography. Awesome. Um, now let's get into the picks of the week. Uh, I have, uh, I got one, you got one. Let's, let's do you first because I, I see it behind you. <laughs> yeah. Mine is, is the fadeless paper backgrounds that I use for when you're doing, when you're doing your zoom calls. I hate saying zoom because that makes it seem like zoom is the only virtual teleconferencing tool out there. There's hangouts, there's Skype, there's all of that, but people are, are trying to step up their Zoom game, if you will. And one thing to do is, yes, you have to make sure your camera's up to snuff and have decent lighting, but you can also give yourself a decent background and clear out the clutter and the muck of your room and just get a paper background uh, from the folks at Fadeless. It's available on Amazon for $10 or so. This is just paper that it could be black, it could be white, bunch of different colors available. I have a couple different rows that are a wooden wooden uh, texture to them. So right now, if you were if you were to see the video version of this podcast, you would think that I'm just sitting in front of a wooden wall or something. And it looks totally fine, especially if you have decent lighting. It, it looks really good, and it doesn't cost fifty dollars like most rolls of uh, uh, seamless white photography costs. You know, it's probably about a third of the price. Yeah. And uh, 
you don't need it to cover a huge area either. Nope. It just has to cover right behind your head. Right and behind you. Just out of the camera's view, nobody cares. Nobody will see it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and it is so much better than the background replacement software tools yes. uh, that, that are out there. It, I'm I'm annoyed when I see people trying that and they've got like some weird thing that keeps jumping in and out of the the algorithm that is you know around them and yep uh, and just spend the very small amount of money to get one of these backdrops I mean I, I don't have that in my studio uh, in my in my office here but it's not terribly messy behind me I've got some artwork and some lights and no some yours looks right. fine because you have depth. In your in your shop, but of course you know that. So, <laughs> well, I also when I uh, when we bought this house and I was setting up my office, I painted the walls a dark gray color mm-hmm. so that things stand out from that artwork that I put on the wall stands mm-hmm. out from that. But I stand out from that, you know, yep. being lit by a light in front of me yep. as well. Uh, you have to if you have got to redesign your room, you're not going to do it um, mm-hmm. for a Zoom call, but. For a couple of bucks, you can throw up a backdrop. That's easy enough to do. You can, get, like I said, you can get it at Amazon, or I believe I actually got this one at the local Michael's Art Store. Um, found it in the section where teachers are setting up bulletin boards of all things. Oh, cool! So yeah, so you can get them in, in retail right now. It's looking on Amazon uh, as of me refreshing the page that it says currently unavailable. Don't that could ju- that could just be because I'm in Canada. Possibly, um, possibly. Uh, so, but but anyhow. Uh, I'll send you the link uh, on Amazon and you'll be able to figure out exactly how uh, you can track down some of it. I've seen yes. people wallpapering uh, in just rooms with this stuff and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could treat it as such. You could. Um, yep. <laughs> All right. Now my pick, um, I did a, an episode of DP review TV recently where I was talking about some of the science of color and color quality. And it was largely very well received, but I was receiving uh, comments and a number of emails from people about what was that thing that you used to see the quality of light that you said that was really cheap. And that thing is called a spectroscope. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a difficult, it's not an expensive item. It's this weird little trapezoidal shaped device um, that you look through one side and, uh, and you'll be able to see through a little optical slit. Uh, what the spectrum spills out into through a diffraction grating. And I'm just looking at my computer monitor right now, and I can see that it's slightly deficient in the blues, um, even though it's an Asus ProArt display that has been calibrated. And the calibration corrects for deficiencies uh, in some ways. And I think that they've got two, maybe three models advanced from the version that I have Uh that might have used even better LED backlighting. but by, by looking at a light source, you can see exactly what that light source is made of in terms of its spectrum. Mm-hmm. And that's useful because if your light is emitting only a part of the visual spectrum or has deficiencies, then let's say I was wearing a particular color of blue shirt um, and my light source doesn't emit that color of blue in terms of the wavelength, um, then it's not going to be able to reflect off the subject and go into the camera lens and be rendered properly. Right. Um, now this is not, it is technically a scientific device, but it's not a quantitative device. It's not something where you actually get true numbers and things from, it just gives you a preview of it, mm-hmm. but it's $8 on Amazon <laughs> to get one of these. And sounds expensive, Don. Yeah. <laughs> Some of my picks are $8,000, but this one is $8 to get a spectroscope. And uh, the link to that will be in the show notes 
at photogeekweekly.com. Even if you only use it once or you give it to your kids to make a science project with, um, yes, you yes. could have some fun with this. And uh, the teachers would be impressed that your kids are able to split the light into all of the spectrums and maybe document that, maybe make some crayon charts and stuff. My daughter's only four. She's a bit too young to be doing that kind of activity. But give her a few years <laughs> and the spectroscope is going to be an assignment of hers. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Um, and thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, I think this is your second time on the show, and I got to have you back on again. I oh, value sure. your opinion it, so much. It is totally my pleasure, Mr. Don Com. I, I, I really do appreciate it, um, the opportunity to be on your show. I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm a loyal subscriber, and I listen every single week. So, yeah, this is truly an honor to, to be on Photo Geek Weekly. Well, and to anybody listening, uh, thank you for also uh, being a listener, hopefully a, a subscriber. Uh, if you are, spread the word. Make sure more people know about this. And uh, you know, maybe write a positive review somewhere where you can uh, that gathers more attention towards the content that I create with great people like Ant on a uh, weekly basis. Uh, and again, there will be another episode of the Inside the Lens offshoot podcast coming out next week. So look for that one as well. And thanks again. And uh, for everybody listening, it's time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>